welcome to another episode of Client Ships Customer Experience Superheroes. This is the podcast series where I, Christopher Brooks, bring you information, insights and ideas relevant to the world of customer experience, with a particular focus on what we feel are the superpowers individuals need in order to be a success in today's world of customer experience. In today's episode, we meet Nick Ligo-Baker. Nick is CEO of CX Paradigm and is also a contributor to a book coming out called Customer Experience 2, in which he focuses his attention on the evolution from customer service to customer care. So here we are, uh, another CX Superheroes podcast episode, and um, I'm delighted today to have with us Nick Ligo-Baker. Hello, Nick. Good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really pleased you're, you're here to join us today. We have been collaborating on a, on a, on a new book, Customer Experience 2, and you're, you're someone who I think uh, many of us in the sector know well because of your, your pedigree background. I'd like to help our listeners understand a bit more about your journey to get here in terms of customer experience? Yeah, absolutely. I have a retail management degree, fell into business at the university and uh, wanted to specialise in something rather than be more generic. And from there, I, I left university and, and worked for an entertainment products distributor, effectively in uh, category management. Part of that was understanding people's behaviour, their buying practices and, and why they bought what they did. But it was also quite a tech-driven business. So I was heavily involved in digitisation of music, streaming at that point and working with vendors and major labels to get them to develop relationships and support new technologies as that came through. And that's fantastic. I really enjoyed that innovation part of the role. But from there, I moved into a very small startup in mystery shopping. It's the first online mystery shopping business, I believe, in the UK. And yeah, that developed into voice of customer, CSAT, brand auditing. So I guess that's, for me, where I cut my teeth really in customer experience. Yeah, from there, I uh, moved into leadership roles within yeah, some of the larger global players. So Ipsos Mori and Cantar uh, Consulting. Very evidence-based then when you kind of your approach to customer experience, you're not so much of a hedonistic approach. It's much more fundamentally rooted in evidence when you, when you come to talk about customer experience. Absolutely. And I, I think I've had the benefit now of being both client side and agency side, but it all started really with, with my degree. And that retail element was was not just about what you put on the shelves. It's, it's how you do it, how you engage customers. And customer experience at that time, although it wasn't necessarily called that, was fundamentally you know, the driver behind why that course existed and you know, the, the reasons for success in, in retail. For me, just carrying that forward and that, that interest that was sparked in doing those things in my degree has led me to, to continue doing that. I've enjoyed that with a passion. You know, I've deviated a couple of times with a few <laughs> projects um, into shopper marketing, into shopper insight. But yeah, the calling's always been back to, to more pure tech strategy, voice of customer stuff. Brilliant. In the in this new book, you're bringing a lot of that experience into into the page or onto the page for us. Uh, so the, the title of your chapter is "Customer Service to Customer Care: Organizational Alignment to Create Better Customer Outcomes." So you know what, what is what is the elevator pitch? It, it's a combination of of case study and practical guidance. Um, and what I found with some other writings is that practical guidance can be a little bit too direct. Uh, you must do this to get this outcome. And life's not like that. So what I wanted to do was bring some practical examples of where I've personally gone through some of the challenges that people face on their, their own 
you know, route to creating more customer centric businesses and how I overcame them, some of the things that happened and, and what my advice would be to, to overcoming them, but um, done in a way that's um, much more about the, the narrative and the story and not necessarily just the, uh, yeah, the process steps that were taken. In it, we, we get a feeling for, for you as much as we get a feeling for the topic, because this is, you know, this is the story that you've been through. It's, it's you know, you've, you've felt the pain, you've got the, the, the battle scars from it. I mean, are you, are you revealing? Are, is it, are you helping us kind of understand what not to do as well as what to do? Yes, I think there's a, yeah, there's a few elements in here where uh, there, there are always some unexpected outcomes through the processes that you go through. When those things happen, it's, it's how do you deal with them? And for me, it was very much yeah, taking a pragmatic view, but also using the resources and creating relationships in various businesses to help them. And I've always taken the view that within business, people want to achieve, they want to do the right thing. So when they set out to achieve a more customer-centric business, they all feel that they want to do yeah, have that end goal in mind. The challenge comes when there are slight differences in the understanding of, of what customer experience, customer centricity might be for that business. And that's why I touched on the, the organizational alignment. And I know there's some there's some challenges at the moment in thought leadership that you don't need to be fully aligned in order to create some customer centricity. And to a degree, there are some processes that can be made more customer focused without having the rest of the business involved but if you truly want to become focused on creating better customer outcomes the entire business has to understand that that's a strategic aim and therefore there's a degree of alignment you know how much alignment will differ between businesses but fundamentally there needs to be you know, a common goal in order to create that momentum in the right direction it would be fair to say even with you kind of bringing it to life in terms of sort of more like a case study it still requires a certain level of competency and capability as an individual in those organisations to, to win over trust, doesn't it? You, you can't just come in there with examples of where you've done it elsewhere and it happens. I mean, there's a real human side to this, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I came into you know, a couple of businesses and you start with, I guess, borrowed authority. I suppose the hiring director or CEO that's brought you in gives you a, a role and tells the rest of the business, this person's come in to do this job. And to a degree, you have some authority to, to come in and, and talk to people, make change, put things, you know, meetings in diaries, etc. That doesn't last long. There's a, a real importance to navigate a business and understand who the real key stakeholders are who truly do have the influence or the understanding or knowledge to really help you succeed. So it's, it's fundamental to build those relationships really quickly and to understand yeah, who needs the help and more importantly, who has the knowledge and insight to be able to feed in to any change process. And for me, that's, that's one of the biggest learnings. It's you, you, you can't just sit at the top of a business and try and make friends with the board of directors. Yes, they have to sign things off and move things forward, but you really have to understand those who are going to be most affected by any potential change and take their feedback on, on for them what, what could be improved because they are the font of knowledge. And uh, yeah, if you don't unlock that and you don't connect the dots, then uh, you know, most projects will take longer or they'll fall flat or they just won't succeed. 
So do you think, is that a case of you enabling them to do their job better by presenting a potential solution? Or is it at those early stages when you're sort of not sure which direction you're going? It's, is, is it about authenticity and, and honesty and openness and transparency so they can see that you're there to serve as opposed to shout and, and, and strive forward regardless of whether they take your direction or not? There's always a need to adapt your style to the organisation mm-hmm. and to listen to how people who you know, I've perceived to be more successful in those organisations, how they act, what they do and how they communicate with, with people. Very quickly, you can get an understanding of the, the culture of the organisation. Then you can start looking at where things can, can improve. And by improvement, that's, that's quite often looking at some of the processes. But for me, it was, it was about co-creating a, a strategic framework, ensuring that there was enough contribution to that so that people at every level in the organisation could buy into that vision. And then using that as a means of becoming a foundation of what happens next. I wrote this in the chapter about making sure that every decision was based on understanding what impact that had on the, the customer. Was it easy and did it add value to customers? And secondly, were we making things easier and adding value to, to our staff? And if we ticked both of those boxes with every decision we made, we were more likely to A, meet the customer experience framework we created, but also be more successful when it came to the adoption of these process changes and the outcomes that we were hoping to achieve for our customers. Great. So recognizing that actually the you know you needed to enable staff to feel that it was a worthwhile initiative in order for the customers to to then eventually get the value. If the staff don't see the value of what you're doing, then it doesn't matter how great it is for customers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's the kind of foundation, really. It's showing people that there's a better way of doing it that's easier for them, mm-hmm. but also makes the outcome for the customers better. And yeah, the more senior you become, the I suppose the less connected you become with your customers. So if you can start articulating that across the board in the same type of language, you start to get that momentum, you get that more connected buy-in. But one of the, the key parts of that is to say, well, that, that's almost the foundation. That's the purpose of this project. Yeah, we've started to influence people. We've started to get people aligned to, we are looking at this. This is what's coming. Yeah, a few businesses I've worked with have been quite reluctant to share openly what the plans are going to be because at that stage, they're just plans. Yeah, they, they like to say, this is the decision and this is what we're going to do. And for me, that can be quite a shock to some businesses and makes it quite difficult, therefore, to get buy-in and adoption. So this was very much about, here's the framework that we're looking to implement, and this is the, the, the long-term aim. But the process of getting there was still very much a fluid process whilst we were engaging with everybody in the business. Mm-hmm. So what that did creates a degree of momentum. Yep. Uh, it created anticipation because people say, okay, what's happening? When's it going to come? And then secondly, it makes, makes it happen. Because if Mm -hmm. you've made a commitment, something's going to come. (laughs) You can't just say, oh, we forgot about that. Because actually that that just undermines the process. By doing it, we were starting to get people to make commitments to change. Not all change was huge. There's a few processes that were were quite different. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But it was important that those we, we set some small expectations and then we started to meet those promises. And the more we met those promises, the more as you say, authenticity and belief, you know, started to build with people in that business. That trust that I was earning through going through those processes and small steps and delivering on those promises was enabling me to then stretch the level of change and the promises that we could make to our customers in the interest of the broader business. Picking up on the title, I mean, are we talking 
about here recognizing an organization and its maturity so it, it's functional in what it does you know kind of it's very serviced based that is a function that it's doing to actually becoming care-based where it's almost that's the the outcome it's trying to fulfill i mean when you say sort of you, you assessed where they are, was this sort of something you held in your head? Did you find evidence around to support and I need to get them to kind of mm-hmm. care about their customers? It's, yeah, and I've seen it in quite a few businesses, particularly where they they have call, contact centres, call centres mm-hmm. outside of retail. Quite often the call centre is not regarded with the same level of importance as you would get with the front end retail. Because the front end retail is where all the sales come from and the call centre is typically picking up all the problems that that's created when it's failed. It's a frustration of mine that businesses don't take that quite seriously as, as their sort of first point of looking at how to get insights and information because they they look at the sale, they look at the voice of customer based on that sales point. They don't look at necessarily what, what's the service recovery been like. How do we maintain the same brand values when we recover a customer as we did when we were selling to them and when we were inviting them through our our brand marketing initiatives. That was part of the process for me. It was to learn more about the insights from the contact centers. It was about then assessing, are we delivering that brand promise consistently across all of the customer touch points? And does that brand promise meet the objective of the business? And slowly by just questioning those motives, starting to unpick and then rebuild that strategy in, in partnership with those stakeholders to make sure that they were really comfortable with what we were trying to achieve in order to then make it easier to implement the decisions that were needed to, to achieve that. Are there particular functions or types within the organisation that are either slow to adopt or resistant, more likely to, to resist, or, or, or does it really depend on the organisation? In some cases, customer experience is, is a very operational thing. That is often more rigid and also, you know, for them, potentially more risky, although you know, not always the case. Others, you know, customer insight, customer experience sits with marketing. It's a brand thing. You know, it's not as tangible. Yeah, again, depending on where it sits, changes how you approach it. Um, you know, I've, I've heard stories of where it sits with HR because it's a people thing, but mm-hmm. um, you know, my experience is typically that it sits between marketing and, and operations. And occasionally, on you know, for some of the really large organisations, they might have a, a yeah, customer insight division, which will report into one or the other. So they, they have put more focus and resource into it but it still fundamentally sits under a marketing or an operational leadership. And, and is that just a reflection of where we are with customer experience? I guess, you know, if we rewind the clock a bit, digital sometimes sat with IT, sometimes sat with operations, sometimes mm. it was marketing until, you know, it, it's found its own, its own place in the organisation. Customer experience, in my experience, doesn't seem to have a, a home. It's either hell-bent on telling the business, you know, everyone owns customer experience or it's it's aligned to service or it's aligned to marketing or mm. to operations. Does that create its own tension in the organisation? I think historically, organisations have been structured in a way that, that just creates silos and makes it more difficult to work you know, cross-function because it's you, know, you have a very clear role in the organisation, you are a cog in a machine and you do your thing. Customer experience is about more than that. It's It has a function and an ownership in each one of those potential departments. So pulling it out and having it as its own entity is very difficult for organisations that are 
already set up in those historical silos. Um, it's easier with new startups. They, they can focus on it and, and create their own divisions that look after customer experience that have ownership in each of the previous sort of functional setups. But it's a bigger challenge for those businesses that are set up in a more traditional way. And often businesses are 60, 70, 100 years old. Um, and in some cases, financial services, yeah, they've been almost doing the same thing in retail banking for 150, 160 years. Yeah. So changing behavior <laughs> is, is a big ask. Um, and digitization and, and more recently the use of smartphones and technology is, is having probably the biggest impact in change of behavior in the last 10 years than they've had in a, de- in, well, in a century. So there's a lot to consider when, you know, what what does customer centricity really mean? And I've seen a split really from customer service being a very functional piece, customer care being the kind of next bridge, and then customer experience being the the overarching piece. So you're working towards better customer experience. You start with a level of customer service, which is about delivering on the brand promise. And then customer care is, is taking that to the next level, empowering staff who would previously be limited in what they could do to you know, attend to a, a customer issue or, or resolve a challenge um, and enabling them to do more than they would otherwise have been permitted. So it's, it's creating a better customer experience, a better employee experience, um, dealing with things faster and more efficiently is going to be in the long term, you know, much cheaper to deliver. You talked there about kind of savings and efficiency. I'd imagine when you are embarking upon these engagements, at least one person will talk about, well, what? how do we measure the contribution? How do we measure both financially and non-financially the gain we're going to get by in introducing mm. this disruption to our organisation? As a, as a man kind of, you know, born of evidence-based tracking studies how how have you found that particular conversation is it, is it a, an, an easy we measure this or is it a bit more open in terms of you know let, let's see where it goes and let's let's retrospectively look back and see what we've achieved how, how do you play that one of my quotes is always without data insight is just opinion mm-hmm. and yeah, that can be dangerous because what feels right in your mind Mind might be totally different to the majority of your customer base. So that there has to be a degree of testing and, and checking, of course. And I guess, ironically, yes, my background shouts measurement numbers, stats and figures, but um, only when you start looking at the, the more qualitative element of it and start reading between the lines can you truly find you know, the insights that help you create action. With every business, it's, okay, you're asking us to make X million pounds worth of investment to make a fundamental change to our business. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. And what am I going to see in return? So uh, one of the examples I've had is uh, that journey was was going to be significant in terms of costs. Yeah, the stakeholders that were going to fund that had already borne costs of other projects. And this was on top of that. And as a priority, it was probably a bit lower down for them than it would otherwise have been if the organization was truly customer centric it starts off by okay what's the increase in cost but then it's about working with business analysts to say okay if we make some changes here and we move some of these roles out to other parts of the business what are we going to see back in efficiencies all of the time reminding ourselves are we making it easy for ourselves are we adding value to the customer and are we you know, going through those two questions um, relating to customers and staff? We're able to say, right, we can take some workload away from 
from one part of the business that slows down the outcome to a customer. We can hand that to another part of the organization that's directly talking to the customer to enable them and empower them to make change immediately. And that delivers a much better customer outcome, saves us seven or eight touch points handling data and information that inevitably delivers a cost. So when you start looking at it in those efficiency terms, you can say, well, actually, we're able to deliver better experience for our customers. And for every transaction we have a customer now on the touch point, we can return X amount of money that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to see. Increased cost of change, but long-term recovery was always part of the calculation because there had to be a degree of why what's in it for us. And it's much harder to say, well, your customers will love you more and they'll be more loyal because you know, what does the loyalty mean? Now, we know that customer acquisition is always going to be far higher than customer retention. Yeah, it's a relatively commonly understood fact, I guess, as, as part mm-hmm. of business. But that needs to be proved. It needs to be, you, know, you need proof points, you need stats and numbers to actually get that across. And with most change management processes, that, that needs to be realised relatively quickly. There are a few quick wins that, that in a couple of my engagements we've been able to put in quickly that have seen an instant reduction in cost. For example, one of them would be moving away from you know, physical vouchering for refunds or gifts, for example, or goodwill, making that electronic. So you don't have the production cost of a voucher. You don't have the postage cost of sending it to a customer. And a customer can have something instantly that they could redeem online which means their experience is far quicker and faster. They're more likely to return to you. And yet the business saves a fortune in postage and production costs. So there are some things you can do really quickly. You can then prove to the business that that small change has just saved you £70,000 a year in postage, for example. Whilst it might not seem a lot in a scheme of the size of the business, it's those little things that say, actually, I've just paid for the cost of me as a consultant for that project. The overall return on investment that you're going to see over four or five years is going to keep growing and my value has been proven. It's not always easy to do that, but in some cases, depending, as you say, on the maturity of the organisation, you are able to find a few low, you know, some low-hanging fruit and some quick wins that, that you can use as part of that you know, building of trust and, and getting into the, the swing of, of becoming more customer-centric. Having worked, and I know you, you've got a background in payments as well, haven't you? So you know this space really well. But um, you know some of the, the issuers and the large organisations will say, but that money that we keep on our system is earning good interest, you know, whilst we're not paying it back. But, you know, is, is the reality, well, you know, it's not your money in the first place. You know, if you think about customer centricity, that money belongs to your, your customers and you should be getting it back to them. So it's not just customer service. You've got to have conversations with finance and be able to prove to them that in the long term, we will benefit here. You know, don't don't think about this short-term cycle. But, I, I, I mean, I don't know what you found, but in the past I've certainly found organisations who are profiting from customers through bad experiences. Now, they didn't set out to do that, but it just was the way the things were set up and they become sort of dependent mm-hmm. on some of these poisons. How do you sort of, you know, transform them and move them that is service to care isn't it how do you move them then from that state to to a better state i guess there's, there's a couple of things there for me is what one is what, what's the underlying technology how long has it been in place and is is that the root cause of the issue you know, is it simply because they cannot 
process a refund fast enough to get it back to the customer, no matter how intent and efficient they are in terms of the processing at a people level. And then secondly, it's it's where does it sit? Who has the ownership of it? Traditionally, yeah, finance teams have probably been the gatekeepers to these things. Is that the most efficient way of doing it? Yeah, they, arguably, there is almost no benefit to holding on to cash at all because the interest rates are so low it just doesn't make sense anymore there's no and you know from a customer centric point of view you wouldn't do it anyway but yeah I, I can't see now that there's any motivation for any business holding on to the cash if they owe it back to their customer and refund because they're, they're not going to make anything on the interest so yeah that for me is a is a non-argument anyway from uh, right now but I think there are processes that sit with different teams and you know, if, it, if it doesn't feel broken to them, then why try and fix it? But they may be once or twice removed from the customer interface and they don't know that you know, if they don't press a ref- process a refund at five to five that evening because they want to knock off a bit early, that that then adds another 24, 48 hours to that customer mm. getting their money back. So again, take, taking those teams through the customer journey when it came to resolving refunds was a enlightening to them because they hadn't realized the impact of their actions but also it meant that they were able to contribute to the solution because they were going well i'm fed up with receiving all of this information in excel and then having to load it up into a system and i can process it individually but i can't do that you know ongoing you know i've got other jobs and other tasks to do yeah, the, the solution in many cases there is to say, well, why don't we empower the agents at the front end and trust them with our money? Yeah, we, we trust a, yeah, a store manager in a shop to, to run a million plus pound business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't run a team, you know, trust a team leader in a call center to own you know, a couple of thousand pounds worth of refunds a week. Mm-hmm. In terms of scale, it's all relative. And, and that's, that's where I sort of loop back around to my, you know, the call center is not treated in the same way that the, the front end store would be. But actually, they have as much, if not more, impact on the customer relationship than the stores do in the first place because they're recovering issues typically. Yeah, it's important for them to have the tools and the ability to make those decisions, firstly, but then secondly, to be able to action those. And it's it can take a little bit of negotiation and, and trust building with senior finance people to say, look, we're going to take some responsibility away for the, the cash flow of the business and give it to another department. Um, or it might even be an outsourcer. We'll put in various processes to minimise the risk of of fraud but the reality is fraud is usually less than one if not half a percent of all transactions so yeah why damage the relationship with 99 percent of your customers for the sake of preventing one 10 pound refund so it's it's those types of conversations that, that, that take place in order for us then to say right let's build some process let's make everybody comfortable with that process and let's move the responsibility for that task to the front end so that the customer has a better experience the agent is able to do something. You know, their role is to fix things. And if they can't, it's hugely frustrating for them to be taking call after call with frustrated customers. So it gives them the opportunity to fix things first time. And then, you know, the finance team you know, lose a handful of tasks, which quite often don't sit at the top of their priority list. And it means that they can focus on their, their core function. But it's about winning hearts and minds to a degree, taking people through that journey, getting them to contribute to that process so that everybody's comfortable with that piece of change. But I think it's a brilliant example, Nick, because it's kind of got everything in there, isn't it? I mean, the, the employee piece, helping them understand the impact that their 
decisions are having on other people. It's not just customers, but on colleagues, that, that lack of trust that sits with it amongst the agents because you know they're not allowed to give a refund, that must permeate through everything that they do. You know, they must feel very uncomfortable about not having that trust. Plus, you've got another department that is looking after a task because money is involved, but that's about the only link there. And as you say, because they're not connected to the customer, it's not really their priority. And if it so you can imagine the the quality of the experience that they apply to it is not going to be consistent with perhaps the way that a, a retail assistant will will help someone in the changing room process or something. So it's it, it, there's lots of mismatch there. And then you know coupled with the fact that the effort involved is back to your sort of equation. It's showing the something benefits the customer and it benefits the employee. Then actually both outcomes are are fulfilled. I mean I think it's a it's a it feels like a small but a massive example at the same time because it just kind of covers all the bases. It's a great example. So do you think organisations over the last few months have needed to change their approach and their views on how they, they manage their customers? Because obviously there's been a lot fewer transactions going on there. So the opportunities to, to experience those organisations are, are fewer. And, and almost if it's an existing contract, it becomes the post-purchase experience, things like refunds and other service mechanics. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think organisations have coped? Have they needed to adjust or have, have we as consumers forced them to adjust? For many, there's been a, a seized and a missed opportunity. I think those who have seized the opportunity have gone right. Let's just reevaluate what our customer journeys are, and yeah, are the personas that we've created for our business still applicable? Because things have changed. Yeah, they've changed in terms of the service that we can be delivered. Because all of a sudden we've got screens up, we've got hand sanitizing, we've got face masks, we've got all of these things that would previously have been considered barriers to service being compulsory. And you know, there's a degree of acceptance because everybody knows they have to. There might be some frustrations with some, but ultimately we have to accept that these changes are in place. But there's no reason, therefore, to stop thinking about how we improve the customer experience but the customer experience is now going to be different and things we did before may not be possible yet alone relevant to new expectations you know i've seen yeah, several comments to say that you know retailers in particular are now trading in trust as opposed to um, you know brand strength my observation has been those organisations that think about what they provide as a service have really struggled to get past the HSE agenda. It's, for them, it's been really challenging to put it in place. And it's interesting you talk about you know those bar- those things that are now barriers to trading. We've seen over the last few years, you know, certainly at banks, they've come down, and now they've they've kind yep. of gone back up. They've always been seen to be preventing business from happening. But there are those organisations who are embracing it and just kind of going, look, it's just part of the business as unusual. And we've still got to deliver that great customer experience. You know, it's going to be a new experience. And to your point, some of the things we did before are not going to be relevant experiences. You know, sort of maybe the concierge doing the handshake as you come into the hotel doesn't work anymore. And, you know, so we've got to find a different way of doing it. But it doesn't mean we don't do it. It doesn't mean the concierge doesn't greet you. The greeter, hopefully, is still there in some capacity, be it 
automated or I don't know at, at Disney stores, but you know, you don't, you don't pull back and stop doing the things that you've built up as being important in your customer experience. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you're in the mindset, which you think service, that probably is something that you'll struggle with. If you're in the mindset that says care, you'll say, hey, hey, these things are still important. You know, our customers still need to feel welcome when they come into our store. So let's think about that. I've been shocked at how easy organizations have adopted nature's warning colors of yellow yellow and black. You know, everyone has kind of put yellow and black everywhere. These are normally tapes around crime scenes. These are places we're told to get out and now you're trying to encourage me in. I think to your, your point, you need to be all aligned on that in terms of understanding mm. we still have customers, we've got to care for them. Because if the finance team are saying, but there's no money coming in, it's like, well, actually, no, we're, we're trading in trust. We're trading in building relationships for the future here. We've got to accept that, you know, it's lean times at the minute, but it's not because they've given up on us. It's because it's just not available to them. I mean, do, do, do you think we're going to have some winners and losers here? I mean, you said there are some missed opportunities. Yeah, I think there's it's about timing as much as anything else i think there are some organizations that have just you know panicked and had a bit of a knee jerk and have, as you say not considered you know the behavioral impact of some of the changes they put in there's a degree of timing i think there's there's a need to reevaluate the journey what does the brand stand for you know why do we have an organization what do we first create it for before it became a business that was servicing its own profits, which quite often is, is the case for large organisations, particularly PLCs with shareholders. You know, why did it kick off in the first place and what was the success factor for it existing? For, you know, for companies that have gone back to those real basics, they can redetermine how to retain that level of engagement, but then adapt process of distancing, washing hands, or, or just you know, the services they can now provide in a different way. And the reason I mention it is because I think probably you would find in the organisations you work with, this is testing their mettle, isn't it? Because if they're making that commitment to become customer carers, it's actually, you know, I've kind of said to organisations, it shouldn't matter if it's sort of profits or pandemic, champagne corks or crisis. Customer centricity is a forever strategy. You adapt to the environment around you. You You don't detach from customer centricity and say we'll park that now and come back to it when kind of times are better so i guess you know the way you've approached it with organizations you're laying the foundations for for whatever climate aren't you it's not just for boom time i mean it's it's about creating a vision that can be applied internationally because every different country has different cultural norms different expectations you know the brand itself needs to stay true because that's that's what creates the brand ultimately for those companies that they've perhaps done the same thing for many, many years without having to really adapt, they become so entrenched in what they do and how they do it. This pandemic has been very difficult for them. And even before that, I think there's the, if you take the restaurant industry, for example, there's been so many collapsing. That wasn't because of the pandemic. That was probably the last three or four years where just social behaviours have, have changed. Yeah, pe- people are less likely to spend time in restaurants waiting to be served because you know, they want to get on with other fun stuff. As a result, the restaurant industry has taken a real battery. You know, it possibly started as far back as 2007 when you know, the, the smoking ban happened in pubs. So the pubs started to shut down. Those who adapted became 
much more food focused and restaurant based. And then again, as, as times changed and people's expectations have, have got cash rich, time poor, the cliche, they haven't really adapted to to do things like um, takeaway food in a lot of places. So of course, you shut your pub down uh, or your restaurant because of the pandemic, you have no other source of income. And yeah. that's, that's been the final straw. Yeah, there's good examples of, of online presence. Uh, I think Primark is probably the most famously known at the moment who don't have or didn't have any e-commerce um, yeah. solution. And they were reportedly losing um, you know, several million pounds a week in revenue and had no means of continuing to trade during the, the lockdown. I'm, I'm sure, and in fact, I'm pretty certain they, they're, they're working on that now. But um, those who you know, put all their apples in the same cart, so to speak, were, were then struggling when things changed. Mm. As to your point, this is just another challenge for industry. Hopefully, whilst we recognise that it's, it's, it's not impossible to predict what the future will throw at us, you need to be focusing on the customer. Because that's kind of you know, despite all this change, they're the only constant in the in the equation. So you, you know, you need to be able to get to them. And I I can imagine from a Primark perspective, there may be something about the importance of driving people into the store because you come in for two, you take out ten. But actually, what it's led to is short sightedness in terms of the 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 e-commerce business. And I mean, maybe there are other factors as well. But it's recognising that your customers are shopping online. So therefore, you better be in that marketplace. I'm sure they're learning and they'll be adapting. And they're not the only retailer. They're just probably the largest one that, that springs to mind. Yes, no, absolutely. Absolutely. If people want to hear more about this this topic then, so it's, it's in the book. The book is it's just out, isn't it? It's just out. It's available on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. You can get a paperback copy. Is that right? Yeah, it's been out on Kindle since the uh, beginning of July. It's now available on paperback to order. So get your hands on it. 20 plus contributors in there i've got a chapter in there you've got a chapter in there some other great mm-hmm. topics in. it's a real variety of stuff isn't it in sort of a bite size so that's great but if nick if people want to get hold of you they can go to mm-hmm. i guess paradigmcx.com go on online and find yep. you or you're happy to kind of get into a conversation on linkedin if someone's got anything they want to share Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm relatively straightforward to find, hopefully. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for bringing your chapter to life. I think there's an awful lot of theory and models and frameworks out there, but it's only when you hear it from someone who's been in the trenches, you can really get a a feel for just how challenging it is. And I think that's what your chapter does for us. So thank you for that. You know, invariably we'll bump into each other again. So I'll just say goodbye for now, Nick. And uh, thanks once again for being on the customer experience superheroes podcast thanks very much thank you